This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 42. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Now, as a former assistant college basketball coach, I always enjoy having the opportunity of having other basketball coaches as guests. In this episode, our guest is head coach for the men's basketball team at Furman University, and that's Bob Ritchie. Now, Bob's a familiar face within the program as he just entered in his seventh season at Furman, where he spent the previous six seasons as an assistant coach, but this is his first year leading the program after being named head coach back in April of 2017. Now, after spending time as an assistant coach at Charleston Southern and, as I mentioned, Furman, he begins his head coaching career as one of the youngest Division I head coaches in the country at the age of 34. And he was gracious enough to spend some time with me as he's in the midst of the season. And just recently, Furman actually played at Duke against arguably the greatest coach in college basketball history, and that's Mike Krzyzewski. And so one of the first things that I wanted to ask Bob was, you know, did you have a moment when you had to stop and realize that I'm coaching against Coach K as a head coach? Yeah, I would say that moment was when Coach K came to talk to me, you know, before the game. And you just sit there and think about it, like, how cool, you know. And as a kid, like, I decided I wanted to do this at 12 years old. And, you know, I grew up in Columbia and I had, you know, most people – it was Michael Jordan or it was Shaq or my deal was Eddie Fogler. Like that, I mean, Coach Fogler was, he was it to me. And I would go, we went to all the games growing up and got to see, you know, the SEC championship. And I just always remembering as a young child and addicted to the game of basketball of how cool, how cool it must be that, that he gets to do this for a living, you know? And, and, but as you, as you start to go through college and then you're majoring in business, when you have these opportunities to go and get your MBA, you have those conversations with yourself that there's only 351 of these jobs out there. Okay, so are we going to really take the full gamble to go try to pursue the dream to see if this will happen one day? And I remember exactly where I was in my parents' house at 23 years old when I made the decision to pursue it. Okay, share that with us. It was it was in, it was in the bathroom like it was it was against the mirror, you know, and I'm sitting there in a moment where, you know, I'd done well in college at a three point nine GPA and I had opportunities to go get an MBA and, you know, to get most of it paid for and was getting pressures to do that. And my father probably thought that was best. And I just remember telling myself, you know what? I can go get an MBA when I'm 30. 
I can go get an NBA when I'm 28. I can't, I can't try to get into college basketball coaching at 30. Like, like there's, there's only a small window. And I knew it was going to be hard. I knew, it was, you know, I was a Division II player, and I knew that the odds were against it. But I just wanted to see it. I just, I, you know, my dad was a physician. Um, my wife's father, you know, was a very successful businessman. And I loved both of them dearly, and my parents are phenomenal. I, I had seen that money wasn't going to be the quencher, right, of my mm-hmm. thirst in life. I realized that at an early age. I didn't want to make my future decisions strictly on that. I wanted to try to go live out of passion. I wanted to go, I wanted to go pursue something that I really, really loved. And it was funny how when I made that decision to do that, how some doors opened up. And over the next three months, I go from interviewing for GA positions to basically accepting the director of operations spot at Charleston Southern University with under Barkley Radeball in 2006. And I was going to report August August 1st, and I took it. I took the job mid-July. I was on vacation with my wife's family in Orlando, and Barkley called me and said, my third assistant just went and took a JUCO job. Before you showed up, you just got promoted. And I've always wanted a guy that I could kind of mentor, I could kind of show the rope to, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let that be you. And so at 23 years old, I'm the third assistant down there. Now, I'm not hardly making anything, but I've got an opportunity. And I've got an opportunity to go do the work immediately right out of college. And so I was over travel. I was over film exchange, which at the time we didn't have synergy and all this easy stuff on the computer. You actually had to use the VHS tapes and put the labels on them and FedEx it and all that stuff. I remember those days. uh, It was much more complicated than now. I kid my staff all the time. I'm my own video coordinator. It's it's three clicks, guys. I mean, come on. But, uh, you know, back then I had to do that well. And, And travel was travel was rigorous. Uh, we had a nine-day trip out west. You know, you had to you had to do all the meals, all the buses, all the planes, all the hotels. It was a lot. And we get to we get to January, and we were having a we were having a tough season. And I wasn't I wasn't involved in recruiting. And it's a great life lesson that I still remember to this day. I was on the flight from where we had played at New Mexico to Las Vegas, and Dwayne Broussard was right by me. Dwayne Broussard at the time was an assistant in New Mexico. He's currently an assistant at UCLA. And Dwayne asked me my background. And he shares with me that that's similar to his background. He played at Bradley and he got to get into coaching right away. And he looked at me and said, how long do you want to do this? And I said, well, you know, I want to make it my career. He said, well, how much are you recruiting? I said, well, I'm not, I'm not, nobody's asked me to recruit. And he looked at me and he goes, well, let me just let you know something. Nobody's hiring you because of how well you do travel. And nobody's hiring you for how well you coordinate film. You better go recruit. Well, Dwayne, I mean, I don't know where to start. Nobody, just go do it. Like, just just get the ball going. Go do it. Don't wait for anybody to ask you to do it. And I promise you, that's what's going to help you the most. Okay? So do everything that they're asking you to do. And then in your margin time, recruit. And so sure enough, I did it. And my office situation wasn't ideal. I didn't have a phone, okay, that was plugged in. I didn't have internet at, at my computer at the time. I had to wait till the other assistants left the office and I'd go use their computers to use the internet. And I would be in there till 11 o'clock at night. And a month later, I'm getting this film. Dwayne was nice enough to send me some reports and to help me. He called me once a week, like mentors do. How can I help you here? What can we do? We were trying to identify an area that we weren't recruiting at the time, and it was Georgia. 
And so all of a sudden I'm putting this film together and I'm getting the transcripts. I haven't told anybody on staff. And we had this recruiting meeting that, that wasn't the most pleasant recruiting meeting that I've ever been a part of. And I sit there and I let the meeting stop. And I go back into Barkley's office and I said, hey, uh, I think there's some players in Georgia that can help us. And I was so nervous, right? I'm 23. I'm like, is this guy going to look at me like I'm a moron? And he's like, whoa, 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 who are they? I said, well, I've got all the film. I've got all the transcripts. I've got... He's like, really? Where, where? I said, well, I've been working on this for a month. He said, go get it. And I'll never forget it. You know, I thought, he was, I thought there was a chance he was going to pass it off to the staff. And we watched the film, who one of them was Jamarco Warren, ended up being the second all-time leading scorer in Charleston Southern history. Another one was Andrew Gadlock, who at the time had no offers, okay? And he ended up going to College Charleston, having an unbelievable career. At the time in January of his senior year, he had zero offers. And it was, it was, and we sat there and we watched these tapes, and he was like, he looked at me, I'll never forget it, as long as I live. He looked right at me, he said, whatever you got to do, go recruit him, all right? However I can help you, go rent a car, go 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 to the high schools. If you got to miss practice, go do it. And, uh, and so I'm all of a sudden, I'm in there. And I'm recruiting, and we signed Jamarco, we signed Toby Bailey, and it was one of those things where it's a life lesson, right? Like, you you can't wait for people to ignite you. You can't wait for people to say, "This is your path." Okay, this is this is what I need you to go do. You have to you have to create your own momentum, and and a lot of times in those situations, it's probably when things aren't going the way they should be going for you. And just like at the time, I think we had won six games. And so, so if you're waiting on good emotion, if you're waiting on good energy, if you're waiting on good times to go create all that momentum for you, then you're going to continue to wait. And, and, and that's a lesson that for me at 23 in this business, you've, you've got to go do the work and, and you've got to go create the work. You got, you got to figure out a way, like, how can I do my job? And then the next job. So now you're 23 years old though. But so where did that internal compass come from in terms of being able to take that step, open a door yourself like that. Where did you learn that? I think that was my upbringing. You know, my, my, my family, like I've mentioned, my dad was a physician. Um, my mom's father was, was a very prominent attorney in Louisiana. And that was just how we were raised. We were raised in an environment where expectations were high and you were, you were expected to work you were expected to not only work, but do your work well. And if it wasn't done well, you would do it again. And that was, that was a, you know, in a lot of cases that would be maybe too much pressure for some people. I enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I, I really responded to, you know, putting the bar high and seeing if I could hit it. And then when I didn't being told that it wasn't good enough and, and then having to go try to do it again. And so it was just, you know, it was just the expectation. And, and I think that carried me through college and my academics and just learning through sport and through my upbringing that production matters, right? Like production matters. Effort, effort is the ticket to admission. Okay. Everybody in most cases has great intent and they're going to give some type of effort. But at the end of the day, like, what's the production and learning? I think college college is where I took the sport. So basketball was it. till I was 18 years old. Yeah. So when did that become your passion, basketball? And do oh, you gravitate towards sports? Old. I mean, it, it, my early memory, um, my dad loved basketball. 
my uncle played at LSU. Uh, I had another, I had another relative through marriage in the family that was actually the head coach at McNeese State in the Southern Conference. So, so basketball was in the blood, and my first memory was a yellow basketball that I'd been given at an early age in Louisiana, LSU colors. And I just remember, I, I mean, I dribbled the absolute cover off that thing. And, you know, I'd go to camps and I'd go to anything basketball. I just loved it. And that passion took me through, through obviously high school, got me an opportunity to play in college at the division two level. And it was really my life to 18 years old. You could sum up in one word basketball. Okay. Like, the book bag went in the locker after school. You know, I did my I did my second period homework in first period. You know, that's kind of how I made it through the day. Everything was revolving around basketball. And when I got to college, I hit some adversity, I had some knee trouble, and it was one of those things where basketball wasn't going quite at the way that I was hoping it would go. And at that point, I had to then dig and reassess my life and figure out how can I take this this area of my life that has been so important and how can I make it applicable to other areas of my life, right? So then I started competing in the classroom, which was new for me. Like, like it was like, I mean, I hated school in high school. I mean, I could not stand it. So school was just something that you just had to get by. I had to get by because my parents expected a certain grade. And so I had to do what I had to do to, to appease them. But it wasn't anything that I really competed in. And it wasn't until really my freshman year of college my, my father, again, going back to, to the element that I was raised in, uh, brought me up to his office, which if you were ever asked to dad's office, that usually wasn't good uh, or it was really serious. And he, he looked at me and I was sitting basically like we are right now. And he said, he said, son, here's the deal. You're going to go try to play college basketball. You're going to attempt to get a, a three, seven GPA because you want to go into pre-med and you got a girlfriend. OK, what I'm going to tell you is there's no way you can do all three of those. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the car that I gave you a year ago and I'm going to take the keys and they're going to sit right here in my office. And if you get the three, seven, I'll give them to you at Christmas. And you, you just through 18 years of experience, there was no, there was no dialogue after that. Okay. Like that, that was just, okay. Don't necessarily agree with it. Uh, but it is what it is. It is not changing. And so that December I brought the report card to his office. It was a four Oh and I got my keys back. And it was so fun because now I was now I was able to bring the competition into the classroom. And that, that kind of stayed with me in college. Now, college, as we know, is a little bit more bottom line driven. You know, you don't have as much of the busy work. It's here's the test. Here's the papers. And I really responded to that. But the point in all that is I learned to compete in an area that I, nece- I necessarily wasn't accustomed to competing in. Right. I learned that. You, you, you got to take what you learn in basketball and figure out like every avenue of your life going forward in some area or another, there's going to be a production measure and you're going to have to compete and you can't be afraid of that competition. And you have to understand that if you're not willing to compete in it, you got to be okay with getting beat, you know? And, and I think that was important for me, right. To let basketball and the competitive nature that I developed in that pour into other areas of my life that, to be honest, were probably a little bit more important. And so when you're having the issues with your knee and your your playing career seems to be over and 
now you're focusing on the academics. So were you still engaged in the thought that I still want to have basketball as part of my life long term? Yeah, but at that point, I'll be honest, it was a little bit intimidating to me. And uh, I started off in pre-med for the first two years. And, you know, so was there all in always an intention that you were going to go down the same path as your dad? Yeah, it it was one of those things where that was that was kind of the safer bet. You know, I mean, like. You know, I'd seen dad's life and, and I'd seen the monetary security from it and, and I'd, I'd lived it. Right. And my uncles were doctors. My dad was a doctor. And it just seemed like the safe route. And so I went down that road. And uh, like I said, two years into it, I just realized and some of it was a lot of his friends were just anytime I'd be around a doctor, they'd kind of look at me like, what are you doing? You know, and and it was just so it was so negative, you know, and the only one that was really positive about it was my dad. (laughs) So I got a little nervous. And so, uh, you know, I kind of I kind of chickened out and decided, you know what, I want to take my competitive drive and I want to take my creativity and I want to see, can I go be an entrepreneur? You know, can I go start a business? Can I go? Just like we do in sports, can you can you take something and see if you can make it better? Can you go create? Can you go execute? I, I felt like the business world seemed to be a much more competitive environment than a doctor's office and just dealing with um, ailments all day. You know, of, of, and of course the world needs it. I just didn't know if that was going to fit my personality, and so I switched to business. And like I said, you know, I got done as a senior and, you know, I had a business degree and monitored in accounting and, you know, just uh, still still to this day. I mean, I, I, I still feel like it's a bucket list deal for me to try to find a business venture that I can tie into this at some point. But um, I'm not quite there yet. You know, I'm, 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 you've got unfinished business that's, here. That's down the line. But uh, I've got. But what's neat about this job is is in sports today. Uh, you are a small business owner, basically. I mean, that's just where it's gotten. Yeah, I was going to ask you, have you felt that you've been able to find similarities oh. as far as being a head coach in sports to the business side? I, I've got I've got a staff of six. I've got to manage all those guys. I've got to make sure that we're all aligned. I've got to, I've got to drive vision every single day, right? I've got to decide what that vision looks like. I've got to decide what our core values are. What do we believe in? Are we convicted about what we believe in? Are we bringing an identity to what we do? Or are we just out here? And that's when you study good coaches. A lot of times what you see right now is they're good leaders. And, and they've got, they've got it. They, they look at it as an executive role, much more than just um, I'm calling ball plays and I'm finding ball players. It's more about how do I create an organization and then and then even taking it a step for, further in that organization, can you see a visible identity and can you see a real culture and all that all that is what what the business world is and then and then even a step further, what's our niche right like like are we are we understanding what our niche is so that we can go be successful in our marketplace? And that's a lot of what my job is and, and how we play. I mean, that that dictates that based on the institution we have here at Furman with our academic standards and understanding how we can create a sustainable winning product inside our niche and to try to go do it the same way other people do it. That's that's where the business helps. That's where the business background has come into play for me. It's why I continue to study business. Because this is just as much a business job 
in some parts as it is a basketball job. How difficult was it for you in terms of moving from the assistant coach role into the head coach role now creating that culture, that niche that you're trying to find, and also hiring the people that would believe in what you're trying to build here. How difficult was that? Yeah, you know, I was fortunate in the fact that when when Nico hired me four years ago, on the phone he said, he said, I want you to I want you to be an assistant. I want you to think like a head coach. And I don't know if somebody had told him that prior. That was a very a mental moment for me when he told me that on the phone. And I thought you know what, man, he's right. Like I want to be a head coach one day. So I got to start thinking like one and I got to figure out in our, in our makeup, in our relationship, what does that look like? And Nico and I just, we have a really, really good relationship and we knew, we knew each other really well. We knew our strengths and our weaknesses. And we kind of, we were able to kind of go back to back on a lot of that and, and just worked really well as a team. But he gave me a lot of things that could prepare me for this. And, and it was enough to where he had plenty to worry about, but he was able to give me a few things that I could try to get my hand in a little bit to experience that. And I thought he did a really good job of, I guess, in a way, coaching me for this moment of, of just saying, OK, think about this. OK, look at it from my perspective. Think about this. What about this? OK. And and so all the culture we established in my time with him is, is, as an assistant he understood being an assistant here previously, what type of person would work here. And so the nice part about my transition is the, the culture was established. I just we just had to maintain it. Right. Um, the way to win here was established in a lot of ways. We just had to maintain it. And, and so and now now the next step, in my opinion, is the hardest step. You know, 23 wins and not going to the NCAA tournament. Is, is is great. It's something that hasn't been done around here in 30 years. But to get it to the point where, you know, and I think this is in business, right? They, they call it that plateau moment where you where you you have that amount of growth from just getting everything corrected and getting your infrastructure set. But then a lot of times it, it streamlines a little bit into more of a plateau. How do we continue to take that journey to a higher peak? And, and, and that's that's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge. I think, you know, going from six wins to nine wins and then 13 to 19, that, that's tremendous. OK, you can't you can't take anything from that. But I think we all know the next step to becoming an elite mid-level program. That's that's by far the hardest step. So what are the ways to win here then and be at that level that you're describing? I think I think what the most important thing is at a place like Furman, you, you have to make sure you don't create a subculture with your team versus your institution. And I think I think. What happened a lot of times in recruiting, we got not necessarily ashamed, but we didn't really align with the identity of the place because we felt like, and I say we as in Furman, we felt like that if we did that, we would have to sacrifice some talent in order to compete at the top of the league. Okay. But what you got to do here is you have to understand and embrace the niche. This is a developmental job. OK, you're you're exactly right. You're not going to go get the talent pound for pound in year one that East Tennessee State's probably going to get with an open admission standard and they can get anybody in school and they can get transfers and JUCOs and the like. But can we develop better? OK, can we identify a person, not a player? Can we identify a person that's going to that has the potential to get to their potential and that's going to be willing to work while they wait? 
And now what we can do, if we can do that, and if we can have a, a development program where the people come in wanting to grow and that's their, that's their support system, that's their background, then what's going to happen when they become juniors and seniors, then you're going to say, well, how'd Furman get that guy? Well, not a lot of people wanted him as a freshman, but when we were able to put him in our system and we were able to bring in a person that identified with Furman and appreciated what Furman offered, now they take internal pride in this place and they're motivated to grow. Now you got you a good player. Now you take those pieces and then now you align it in a culture that's aligned, not just with your institution, but also with your department that's that's got internal alignment, that's got staff alignment, and you can keep that thing aligned. Now I think you have a chance to be a better team, right? You have a chance to be a better team. You take developmental pieces and then you put them in a culture that's aligned. Now you've got a chance to go out there on certain nights. You might not be able to out-talent people every single night. I think you can out-team people. And, and as cliche as that sounds, I think that, you know, I mean, Saturday, 24 assist, okay, um, versus Asheville, 21, 22 assist, right? Well, that, that don't just happen. Like, that, that didn't just happen to get a group of three senior guards at all or trying to figure out what their next step is next year to go move and share the ball like that. And that's also not figured out in a walkthrough or some practice, okay? Like, that's your culture driving that. And, you know, for a team that's basically playing four guards, you know, I think right now we're top 50 in the country in steals. To play that hard and to play that connected, that's what we have to be about. We have to be connected. We have to play connected. We have to we have to be connected as a staff. Um, we have to be connected on defense, on offense. Everything we do, we got to be connected. And if we can do that, I think we have a chance to be really good here. And it, to your point, it doesn't happen overnight. It's no. a building process. And you mentioned East Tennessee State. So go back to that time where you had a choice. Your assistant coach here at Furman, the head coach is let go, and then now Nico Medved is hired. But you have opportunities that you could have left, and one of them was East Tennessee State. So how difficult was that in terms of that choice that you had to make? So, so I appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, I think as a message that I could share with people, I think that decision in my life right there is, is probably as, as motivating as any because at the time, conventional wisdom told me to leave. And I think, I think that's a lot of life that, that we focus so much on approval of others and we focus so much on what conventional wisdom says and what, what are the outsiders going to think of this decision? And we don't we don't operate out of conviction, right? Like we're, we 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 just operate on approval, and we operate on what is the next person going to think? And for me, I went off conviction. I've been here for two years. One of the biggest thrills of my life was being able to see Charleston Southern go from six wins to basically being positioned to win a co- two conference championships. Mm-hmm. And my last year there, we won sixteen games. We had just finished recruiting Sa Nimley and Arlon Harper. We had all those guys coming in. We got to see completion. And when I got here, we had signed Stephen Kroon. He was a sophomore at the time, you know, Nico's first year. So he was just finishing his freshman campaign when we got let go. We had signed Chris Acox to a letter of intent, who was going to obviously last year was on the all-conference team. Greenville is unbelievable. The campus here is top 10 campus in the country. The academics are top 50 in the country. We just didn't have the program that we needed to have, but everything else was here. And my conviction was if we do, if we recruit at this level and get this type of kid the next two years, we can do it. Like we, we absolutely can do this. And you know what? Nobody else was telling me at the time we could do it. 
mean, every all my all my both all my mentors told me to leave. Uh, everybody in the business, Furman's a bad job. Uh, it's not a good job. They don't care about ball. It was it was strictly my internal conviction of all all the tools are here. We just got to go get the right people, and we got to we got to do it a couple more years. And at the time, you know, ETSU, it's a public school. Uh, they were making the transition from the A Sun to the Southern, but they had just recently come off an NCAA tournament appearance. Uh, they had a bigger fan support. the The money that they were offering was more. And wildly enough, my wife is from Greenville. She was ready to go. You know, like I mean, she was open to whatever she felt like God had for us at the time, but she wasn't holding it up. And, and we had taken a trip up there, and it was just two hours. You know, it was an easy ride. And she just she said, "Bob, I'm here to support you." I can see it's two hours. I mean, I can see my parents whenever I need to see my parents. And she had given the blessing. And I, you know, I met Nico and I had my conviction. He flew in and we had dinner downtown. And once I saw his conviction and I saw that it was similar to mine in terms of how it could work here, I was just determined. I mean, I, I, I just, I just thought, I said, we really can get this done. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew it was going to be hard, but it's just how life works sometimes. Like you can't make decisions on public approval. You you got you got to know who you are, and you got to figure out what your convictions are, and you got to let those convictions drive you. And those convictions are what's going to carry you through adversity. And you know we got we got cracked our first year, and our second year, you know we we had recruited well. All these guys that were seniors were freshmen, and we were starting three of them, and all of them were in the top seven of our rotation, and we were still getting cracked. And then all of a sudden, late in the year, you know, we beat Western Carolina here. We almost beat Wofford in the last game of the season. We roll up to Asheville and we take a 10 seed all the way to the championship game. And with four minutes to go, we had the lead. And I looked up there and I didn't want to get too excited yet. I thought, <laughs> I'll be daggone. We're about to do this. And from that moment, right, belief started to set in. And it's just been neat to see it. You know, it's been neat to see it now. To be able to be the head coach here is just it's it's phenomenal. So, was there ever a point in that first or second year when you're having those struggles uh, when Nico's hired that you questioned, "What did I do? I should have taken that East Tennessee State job." No, I, I didn't. I didn't because I, I, I feel like I feel like a lot of times, and I'm a man of faith. I feel like a lot of times we put too much onus on the decision, and what I mean by that is. We say, you know, a common line in our society is just, you know, well, I think it was God's will for me to do this. You know, or I, I think I think this was God's plan for me or I think this is what God wants me to do. I'm a little complex. I think I think God's great enough to kind of do whatever he wants, wherever you are. You know, and I think I, th I think that he can kind of take whatever situation. And he's so much more focused on our approach and how we're doing it as opposed to us trying to be mind readers to figure out exactly what's what's the play-by-play -play on the actual decision. I think it's so much more about the approach once you make the decision. And it's so much more about the conviction. Because if, if we really believe that as we go through and make our decisions, that those are either fatal or they're final, then that's really telling ourselves that we're basically replacing God in some way, correct? Like, Okay, so now he can't do anything in this current situation. I just don't believe that. And so what I try to do in my mind is when I'm going through adversity, just understanding that I've, if, if I'm diligent to my duty, right, and if I'm obedient in what I'm supposed to do with my effort and with my relationships and, and with my job, that at some point, like, not necessarily to say that's going to be rewarded, because I don't think that's always how this thing works, 
but I think you'll get some fulfillment out of what you're doing. So when did faith become so important in your life and your connection with God? Yeah, you know, that was at an early age. That's that's I was raised in that environment. And, um, you know, I was grown up that, that faith was faith was really important. And, um, you know, we all have our moments of of finding and, you know, whatever you want to call it, where you, you got to take it from what you were told as a child to where it's got to be, it's got to be you, right? Like you, you have to decide if this is what you believe. And, you know, I've never really had that moment where I've just completely swayed out of lack of belief. Um, but it's a situation where just in my, my personal journey, I just, I think it's, it's just way too clear for me that faith is a huge part of my life. And that with everything going around in the world and, you know, I'm, I'm a big history guy, as I've alluded to a little bit. Um, man, I think if you study history, it's it's just really, I mean, just take the Revolutionary War. Like, just go read about it. Like, go, go go get one book as we sit in what we feel like is the greatest country in the world and just get one book about it. And you tell me that there wasn't divine intervention in that. It's 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 hard for me to get around, you know, and, and uh, I've just seen how it's played out in my life. And, you know, I, I look back like, I mean four years ago. Okay. I'm 30 years old with a kid that is two and a kid that's four and I'm fired. Okay. Like, like I'm sitting in the chair you're sitting in with my boss saying, we just got to let go. That's four years ago. Well, today I'm a division one head coach at 34 years old. And we just came off the best season in 30 years and won a conference championship in the regular season. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to make that bigger than what it is, but like, like that's, that's just, there's faith in that to me and there's belief in that. And, and that's just how I choose to live my life. And going back to earlier, we talked about how, I mean, four years from that point that you're talking about and you're shaking Mike Krzyzewski's hand as you're a head coach now coaching against him. And again, that's just, you have to put that into perspective and uh, just knowing that your faith is helping you along that journey. Just, I know it has to give you just confidence in knowing that you can face anything. Yeah. I mean, cause I think that, I think if you if you really study scriptures and you go through the Bible, very rarely it's really hard and it, it's hard to find success without adversity beforehand, right? Like like you you can't find a story where it's just all success and here's the secret formula. Like the books that come out, top ten ways to success. Well, let me tell you the first one. All right, get your head beat, okay? Like like that's that whatever book you want to go out there and write, like get cracked. Okay, and let's see how you deal with it. And whatever you figure out in those moments, those are those moments from there are going to be steps two, three, four, and five. And we're just infatuated with this, like, well, what's the secret? What's you know? And when when you look at the stories of the Bible, like you just see that clear as day. I mean, you you can take it from whatever character you want to bring up, from Paul to Moses to Joshua to, to whoever. Like, there's always going to be sacrifice before the blessing. There's always going to be a, a a test, a trial. You know, as we like to say here, you know, you have to have a test for a testimony. Okay. And, and, you know, you can't, there, nobody wants to hear a testimony if there's no test, right? Like that's not, nobody wants to listen to that. That's right. You know, like, well, this guy won his whole life. It was all easy. Everything was great. Like who, who cares about that? We, we want to see what were people able to overcome. Okay. And then basically when they overcame that, what did they become from that? And that's, I can see that in my personal life. I can see that with this program. Um, I can see that with the people around me that are my mentors you know, the mentors that helped me, they've all had their moments of adversity, you know, and then they've been transparent with me about those. And, and so we get fixated with this 
success and what this thing looks like and what, how you define it, you know, but at the end of the day, like it's ongoing and there's, there's, there's pits, there's peaks, there's, there's everything along the journey and you've got to be able to deal with all of it. And sometimes dealing with the success can be harder than dealing with the adversity. You know, you got to be able to deal with all of it. And faith really stabilizes me in those moments. And I know you've talked about growing the person, grow the program. So explain that. Well, you see right here, this is, this is a paladin define, and that's, that's the P for us, prioritize growth of the whole person. And that's, that's a big deal to me. I think in sports right now, it's all about the player. Okay. Can the player help you? Can the player help you win? If he can't move him and get another one. Okay. But as you do that, make sure you put in your locker room and in your film room that we're a family and tell everybody you have good culture. But as soon as they're not producing for you, go ahead and transport them. And what's, what's amazing to me is that parents and recruits aren't calling this stuff out. And they're not really looking into it like, okay, you're telling me that this is a family, but yet you have two and a half kids leave a year, which is what's that was the average last year. That was the average per program. Okay. And so what we try to do is the opposite. If we can invest in you as a person and we can help, we can help your growth in all ways. Then we believe that that right there is what's going to motivate you. Therefore to take ownership of your growth as a player and you're going to see the growth in the rest of your life. And you're going to feel like you're getting better as a person. And that's what's going to lead you to stick with the journey. And, you know, us in North Carolina, only two programs to not have a postseason transfer in the last three years. And, you know, one of my boosters laughs at that. He says, well, they've had they've had some guys leave early to the draft. So really, you're the only program in the country that hadn't had one. I don't know if I want to quite go that far. I wish I had a couple one and dones, but that's OK. But it's one of those things where. We didn't play all 13 guys last year, right? I mean, we didn't, but they stayed. Well, why'd they stay? Well, because they're growing in their life and we get all caught up in skill development and becoming a better player. Like what are we doing in sports when we have all these, we have all their time, we have all their, their schedules. What are we doing to help them win in life? Okay. Because all we talk about, I see the press conferences. Okay. We're going to, we're going to be good in the community. We're going to be good on the court. We're going to be good in the classroom, the three C's and all this stuff. Right. But like, what are, what are you doing to help them in their interview when they leave you? What are, what are you doing? Like th- these guys don't know how to dress. Like they don't know. They don't know what they don't, they can't just walk in a the belt. They're six, eight. They can't just go get a suit. <laughs> And so what we've done is we put together, you know, the further the man program and it's a little okay. bit of a play on word, but F U R and further and then man at the end. And my mission when I got the job was to put a systematic program together that we could evaluate if we were helping these players win in life, not, not the classroom, not the court life. And so I got with, I got with some people, I started sharing my vision. I've been amazed. Nobody's told me no. Okay. Like you go ask them for facilities. They'll tell you, no, right. Like we want to enhance this. We need, but you go ask them to invest in people and they all say yes. And so I was sitting down with one for coffee in this summer and he said, give me a wild idea. I said, these guys don't know how to dress. Like they, they're going to have to go have interviews and they don't, they don't know how to dress. I want to help them dress. Well, what do you have to do? Well, they're six, seven, six, eight. They're big. They got big bodies. We got to go get a tailor and we got to bring it in and we got to get them all tailor made suits looked right at me within less than three seconds. He said, done deal. I'm covering every bit of it. I'm bringing my tailor in. We're doing it as long as you clear it through compliance, which we did through travel. And we did it right now. Every single one of our players, not that we're going to do it. They all have a tailor made suit right now that they possess. 
And this particular person is committed to helping us with that yearly so that our team in four years, when they have their interviews, they're going to have four suits. And we've 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 connected with Carl Sobolinski. Carl's going to do an etiquette dinner over the break. And we're going to bring in people that teach them how to eat. We've had mock interviews. North Northwest Mutual, their talent acquisition person has come in with our upperclassmen. They've done a resume to play program where they've helped them put their resume together. And they've carried them through mock interviews that they've recorded in their suit. And then the last step of it is we've created a mentor piece that is a connector in the community that is one-on-one with our upperclassmen. And they meet with them once a month. And what that does is now they have a person that they can ask the right questions to because we know in life as you're transitioning, a lot of times, do you have the person that you can ask the right question to? Can they lead you down the right path? So now they, they, they have a mentor. They're going to know how to eat. They're going to know how to dress. They're going to know how to talk. They're going to know how to interview. Now we're teaching them how to take that next step from here and to go in the next phase of their life. And they can see that tangible growth. It's not some some cliche on the wall and it's not some deal in the locker room. It's, it's a tangible program where we're trying to further the man and you know, it's, it's, you get them, they're not men yet. Right. And so I want to further them into manhood, but it's been neat to see how that process is going. And also, you know, it's, uh, it's unique, you know, it's a differentiator. It's something that not a lot of people are investing in. And, uh, it gives me a little bit of reward to know, that I can look at my team when a guy plays three minutes or when he doesn't play at all. And I can tell them that we're still investing in you, right? We're, we're still trying to help you and, and we can really teach how to keep this stuff in perspective and help them work through that adversity instead of now. Now on the other side of it, what it really does is it builds tension. Well, you're not playing me. You don't care about me. You're not playing me. You don't trust me. You don't, you don't think I'm good enough. Well, the guys that I'm not playing, I met with two of them right here in this office. And we had, we, you know, ongoing conversation. There's nothing to hide, right? It's just the end of the day on the court, you got to produce, but that doesn't mean that I'm not trying to help you in your life. And I think we need more of that in sports. I don't think we have enough of it. And that's a mission for me to make sure that we do that very well here. I agree a hundred percent. And I think you building the foundation of you're not focusing on the W's you're focusing on creating men that are going to be better in society it only helps everybody. And then also, I think that person that you're helping is that they see, they're seeing that you're investing into them. So I firmly believe that they're going to invest back into working harder on the court for you to be a better producer, to be a better player, because they feel the love that you're sharing with them because you're investing into them as a person. That's exactly right. And, and that's what we believe here, that in society, it tells you to focus on outcomes and you pour everything into outcomes. Outcomes drive your decisions. The approach is what matters. If, if, you're, if, you are a, if your approach is right, the outcomes will take care of themselves. But if you focus on the outcomes and your approach is faulty, then your, your outcomes aren't going to turn out how you want. And then you're going to try to change it up. And then, and then you're going to get away from identity and then you have no infrastructure. I mean, it, it all goes around and you got to start, you got to start with who are you and you got to build on that. And, and I think that if we continue to do that, the outcome will be, will be success based on our approach. That's right. All right. So wrapping up here, Bob, what other words of wisdom have meant a lot to you in your life that you'd like to share? You know, I've, I've touched on a lot of it. You know, I think that, I think in today's time, I think we we always are harping on what we do. We're, we're working out. We're trying to make money. We're, we're trying to do things that build the body. 
what I would tell people, and it goes back to what we we're talking about with reading. I think we have to really try to think better as, as a society. Like we have to really, we have to exercise our mind as much as we do our body and as much as we do our, our business and as much as we do our workplace, what are we doing to grow the mind and to make sure we're thinking properly? I think there's a lot of negativity in society. I think, I think, you know, the news, uh, you could argue, you know, they're just trading for tragedy on there, you know, just, you know, how can we throw something out there that's, that will get, that will get views. Therefore we can sell. And, and, and what happens is you have a society that I feel like we're low in belief. We're low in morale. Um, we have, we have, we, we have a, a society right now that I feel like is trying to show some arrogance, but behind the scene, there's very little self-confidence, right? Because the, we want to show that we're, we're capable and, and we want to show that we can go out and do it. But are we really thinking right? Like, have we really assessed what our gifts and what our talents are? Do we know who we are yet? Right? Like as an individual, do, do we know that we all have gifts and we all have talents and if we assess those to a point where it's not about how many likes you get on your social media and what other people think about you, it's about what are you best at? And now let's take that and let's start thinking right. Okay. Let's start going out there and thinking that we can do something. Let's start going out there and thinking that, Hey, I've got the gifts and the beliefs and the talents to overcome the adversity. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to go do and go do it. And, and we're sitting back waiting for approval. And we talk about this a lot with our team. Don't, don't focus on approval so much. Focus on authenticity. Okay. Because it's one of the two, like you're either going to try to be approved or you're going to try to be authentic. You can't, you can't do both. If I go be authentic, then I'm going to let the approval process take care of however it needs to take care of. If I'm going to go focus on approval, there's no way I can be authentic. And we tell our guys that all the time, like you you can only be the second best version of the person you try to mimic. That's, that's the best you'll ever be able to do. But you can always go try to be the best you you can be. And that doesn't mean go be the best. That means go be your best. And whatever your best falls at, I promise you, when you look back over it over time, if you try to go be authentic to that and you know who you are, you'll be pleased with the outcome. And it goes back to what we're talking about in terms of winning. But we, we, we've, I just, it's tough. It's hard for me to see this society of just, you know, taking pictures of ourselves and putting this stuff out there and promoting ourselves and trying to create this individual brand that we feel like is going to be approved. And then at the core of it, when we go to bed at night, we know it's not real. And then you got to live with that. And now we're tagging that as depression. And I mean, it's a, it's a bad deal. Okay. It's a, it's a really, really bad deal that we're, we're trying to put on an outfit that's not us. And then we're not really able to go out there and tell people how we really feel. And it's leaving a lot of people empty. And I would encourage anybody listening today, just go be the best you that you can be and don't care what anybody else thinks. And it goes, it goes back to my faith. There's only one opinion that matters. All right. The one that created you, he created you to be a certain being, go be that and, and just trust that that's good enough. I would have to say that Bob's maturity level at age 34 
is something that I didn't expect. And, you know, my point of reference, just being myself and looking in the mirror and thinking back to when I was 34, I know I wasn't that mature. And I can say that at the age of 46 now. And after spending time with Bob, I can also tell you that his vision and what he's trying to build, it's not just rhetoric. He is truly trying to build a successful program at Furman that's not necessarily just focusing only on the W's. Of course, winning is a major goal, and a lot of times that's the only goal, but I firmly believe that winning is a byproduct after you build the right foundation, and I think that's what you're also seeing Dabo Sweeney do at Clemson with the football program there. And when you invest in growing people, they will invest back into you, and there's no doubt Bob is doing that at Furman, and I firmly believe that he'll have the Paladins contending for a Southern Conference title for many years to come. And if you want to be even more connected with the team, make sure you listen to the podcast that Coach Richie and his staff has started. It's called All Den, and Den, D-I-N, is a play on words from their nickname, the Paladins. And D-I-N actually stands for Deliberate Improvement Now. And in each episode, Coach Richie and the staff, they're going into almost a behind-the-scenes type of look into the program with the latest news and updates, interviews with players, talking about past games. They're going to try to have former players on there, obviously the coaching staff as well. And again, it's just a great way to stay connected with the team. So make sure you check that out. Now that finishes episode 42. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.